Are we ready to roll? We're recording. All right, great. With a good plan and a little bit of luck, we were able to get started, get some traction, and grow the business too. Today's episode is sponsored by Giving Garden, a new locally developed app that is focused on growing community around food and gardening. Stay tuned through the end of the episode so you can get more information on where to download the app and how you can be a part of it. Welcome back to That One Thing. I'm Gordon Fowler, and in today's episode, I got to sit down with Mike Renero, who is a true entrepreneur's entrepreneur. Mike is currently the president, CFO, and co-founder of Seat Ninja, a restaurant seating and reservation software service that helps restaurants manage the front-of-house experience while providing guests with information so that they can make dining decisions through its user-focused app. I met Mike when he first joined the first class of business owners at the Glue Factory, which is a co-working space for entrepreneurs that Threefold and the Health Education Council worked together to form. I was immediately drawn to his story and his entrepreneurial path and wanted to hear more about his experience in developing two very different companies along the course of his career. Before investing in Seat Ninja, Mike served as the vice president and CFO of Smile Business Products for 16 years. At Smile, as he refers to it, he helped grow the company from two partners to more than 100 employees who continue to provide businesses with equipment and managed services today. Mike and I sat down to talk about the realities that entrepreneurs face as they transition from their corporate workplaces to developing their own unique business concepts and growing successful businesses. Mike shared with me the five elements he sees as necessary to entrepreneurial success, the excitement and setbacks he's experienced as an entrepreneur, and the value of mentorship along the way. But first, we talked about the experiences that ultimately led him to take the leap of faith to start Smile Business Products. So let's talk about when you decided to start Smile Business Products. Do you remember, like, was there something that just pushed you? Was there a a moment? Uh, I was a pretty fiery kid. And there was a moment in a meeting that I sat with people that were supposed to report to me, but had this dual reporting responsibility to someone at corporate headquarters in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And so every word that I uttered in the meeting was analyzed and parroted back around me through staff at this meeting. And that's when I realized that, what am I doing here? I'm not a corporate game player type guy. Yeah. I'm a very straight shooting, you know, let's get down to business. Let's do it's right by the customer. Let's do it's right by employees type of guy. And I knew at that time that I wasn't long for there. So how long did it take you then till you sort of put your plans together, figured out how you were going to make money? Well, it was about 24 hours because wow. that meeting, I also got a little upset and they decided to um, have a conversation with me yeah. about how I felt about the organization, mm-hmm. and, and about 24 hours later, I was gone. Yeah, and so it was at that point where the general manager of of the company called me up and said, "What the hell happened? I go on vacation and you you leave?" And I said, "Well, you know what's going on." He said, "Yeah, I know what's going yeah. on." I said, "Look, I'm going to do. I'm going to work on a business plan. I'll give you 60 days to leave, and if you want to partner with me, we'll go into a partnership." And he says, "Okay." Wow. Give me 60 days. Yeah. And so I worked on a business plan. Having 60 days to work, do nothing but focus on a business plan of what would be, if I was to create my dream company, what would it be? Yeah. Uh, that was enough uh, to get him interested. And then when he saw it on the 60th day, which just happened to be April Fool's Day, which is an ironic day to, yeah. present, to, a business to, to present a business plan, <laughs> he quit. And wow. then we were working without a net. 
Mm-hmm. We, we pushed together. I pushed together all the life savings I had, plus an extra $30,000 I, I borrowed from my parents. He pushed in a bunch of money, and we went into business together. And we started out with nothing. Yeah. And uh, we had a little bit of help. We had a landlord of a building that helped us out with some rent and gave us some rent concessions. We had some people that uh, really thought that we could do it that said, you know what? When you're ready to hire some people, we'll gladly come on board, uh, which was great. And uh, with that and a good plan and a little bit of luck, yeah, we were able to get started, get some traction, and grow the business to you know, it probably has about 120 employees now and yeah. still thriving in many markets here in Northern California. Right. So when you started, what do you think some of the factors were? I mean, there is a little bit of luck involved, but fortune always favors the prepared, right? right. What do you think the critical elements are to start zeroing in on in order to make your business sort of differentiate? You know, you talk about great customer service and that's what your companies are known for. Like what you know, what were some of those key elements for people that are right at that stage where they're thinking, I'm, I think I'm ready to jump, but these are the things I have to really be clear on. Because there's a lot of things that sort of work themselves out. But what are like the must-haves in your mind? Yeah, uh, there are five yeah. that I think are, are absolutely critical. Uh, one is to start off with a good plan. Mm-hmm. Right? So you have to really, in that plan, you have to really understand what your go-to-market strategy is, uh, what, what, what type of investments can be required, all those nuts and bolts types of things, the, the numbers that are going to make this work. Uh, and, and you need to prove it out on paper that if your assumptions are right, then we will make X amount of money, we will grow X fast. Uh, I think that that's critical. Second thing is you need to have access to the right people. Mm-hmm. You got to pull together the right team. If you don't have the right team, then your your odds of success diminish rapidly. So you've got people got to get people who are experts in their field, experts in what they do, their specific discipline, and the more you can get, the better off you are. Uh, the third unique thing you need is to be adequately capitalized. If you don't have the right amount of money, if you're undercapitalized, you're going to struggle. Uh, because if you're off your plan a little bit and you don't have access, ready access to capital, it may doom you right there. Uh, the, the fourth thing you need to have is uh, the right product, the yeah. right service, right? Uh, uh, what are you going to deliver that differentiates you from the competition? What's going to make you great? And yeah. what are you going to really, really be good at uh, better than anybody else? And then that last thing is that that luck, that, right. that opportunity, the timing. Uh, that is probably the most important thing is having that right timing. And, and with Smile, we had that. Yeah, uh, I think that with Seat Ninja, we have that too. I think the timing is now. And so if you're talking about the things, I think those are the five critical elements. If you have those five, your odds of success are almost guaranteed. So how do you know when the timing is right? So I'll give you my go-to answer, which is structure equals freedom. If you have a structure in place, then you have the freedom to understand where to jump and when to jump. But it probably is the number one question that I get asked. You know, I think it's the ability to know an industry really well and sense pain. Huh. If you can sense pain, where something is broken, where something is hurting, uh, are people screaming because they're paying too much money for something? Are there very few players involved that are dominant, uh, that are using that dominance to an advantage and to the disadvantage, really, of, of their customers and who they're trying to serve? Those types of insights or an elegant solution, something that already exists that, and I hate to use this word because it's so overly used right now, but that really, truly disrupts. Yeah. Is this really, truly an invention that is, oh my God, this is so different that yeah. it's awesome. Uh, 
uh, and, and I can name several examples right now out there that I that I see that are like that. So I want to talk about that a second because you're like the entrepreneur's entrepreneur. You know, the other thing I always tell people is a true entrepreneur is either or and the very best and the very worst employee in a company, right? Like, don't you think? Like, Dead I, on. Right. Because there's always a better solution. You're always thinking of a better way to do something. And if that message isn't received, which nine out of ten times it isn't, because we're like passionate about what we want to do, and then we don't understand why people don't do it. And, you know, I always tell people when you're out there and, you know, don't get discouraged. If you are the best employee and the worst employee at the same time, like, that just means you're an entrepreneur. Like, don't beat yourself up. Like, start looking for your opportunity. Because if you don't, then it starts grinding on you. Oh, it does. And I love the way you put that, the best employee and the worst employee, because that's really what I've been my whole career. Right. Uh, and, and part of it's my passion to be the best yeah. and to do things better and to have a really good product or a really good service and rise to the top. And some people are okay with mm-hmm. average eh, I'm gonna put my time in, mm-hmm. I'm gonna punch my clock, you know, I gotta get, you know, gotta do these things after work, or eh, maybe I'll even kick off a little early. And it's never been me. Yeah. And I think that that makes you the worst employee is, you know, organizations, especially the larger they are, not everybody's like that. Right. And you got you have to not only tolerate those people, you have to sometimes placate to them. Right. Well, and I think many times, too, people mistake the role that somebody plays with the amount of motivation, right? So people would say, oh, if you're at an entry-level position or an administrative support function, like you chose that, you're not that motivated. Where really, I was always like, you could be just as motivated doing whatever you're doing. Just work really hard to be the best at it and to get this company and this team sort of to where we want to go. And just because you have a job like a strategist or an innovation officer doesn't mean that you work any harder. And I found that that was, you know, very often mixed up in big companies because they'd sort of assign levels of mediocrity sort of down the chain. And it just, that never made sense to me. Well, the, and the scariest thing about that is that when that type of structure is laid out, what happens is the people at those, they start believing it. They perform well, to that level. And they perform level. to that level. Yeah. And, you know, when when we started Smile, I had this, I, I don't know if it was an expectation or I just created a culture where everybody was important. And not because I said, oh, I got to make sure that everybody's important because if I don't, they're going to go all lax on me. No, because I truly believed it. Because I truly believed every position was critical to our success. From the guy that dropped off the copy machine to the person that picked up the phone and said, can I help you? To to the dispatchers who did that, to the billing people who made sure that all the billing, all of that stuff was so incredibly important to the to the overall customer experience that if and there was any slip, if any any part of that wasn't at a at a high level, we were going to have a breakdown. We we're going to have a failure. We were not going to we were not going to succeed the way we needed to succeed. Especially being the new company, we had to be better. So you're sitting uh, building this company, working your butt off, building up Smile to a level. How did you know when it was? time to take on your next challenge? Well, I looked in the mirror and I, I, the 21-year-old guy I kept seeing, that guy wasn't there anymore. The, the guy, I, I started looking the age the guy I am now. And I, yeah. I said, you know what? I want to do something else. I want to do something more. And uh, I, I really enjoyed the startup, that, that whole startup feeling. Yeah. And now that I've been in the startup feeling now for several years since leaving, 
I question why I thought that because it's crazy. It's crazy to have those thoughts because I kind of sometimes wish that I was back in the nice, comfy domain sure. that, that I'd been part of creating uh, because that was easy. That was fun. That was, you know, I, you know, you had a hundred people that a lot of whom I hired personally uh, who were, were very loyal, who were very, and were just darn great people. I handpicked yeah. and, you know, but I just really felt like, okay, I'm not going to be one of those guys that you know, starts a business at 30 and then at 70 he goes, well, it's been a great ride, you guys. I wanted to try to do it again. I wanted to try to do something else. And, um, and uh, fortunately, my business partner uh, he reluctantly agreed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I, think that, uh, I think for both of us, if, if we look back, it was probably good for both of us. So you've talked about looking around, identifying, seeing where there's pain, and then how to build a business around mitigating that pain, um, which brings us to Seat Ninja. So how did you first realize that there was a market for what you're doing? Because like when we look at the f- sort of the facts, right, you are a disruptor in the field, but you are going against like industry giants. And so, you know, out of the Sacramento region, you pull a team together and start really taking, I mean, it's a true like David and Goliath story. So was the pain level that bad where you felt you could provide that much better of a solution? Or are you just a sucker for taking down the big guys? Or is that all of it? See, Gordon, this is where I should have done this podcast back when I was first thinking about it, because had I heard those words come out of your mouth, I wouldn't uh, be sitting here right now yeah. saying I did it because yeah. that just scared the crap out of me yeah. right there. <laughs> but, uh, no, there, there was a huge opportunity. I mean, Open Table was the game in town. It was it, you know. And you know, this this was you know five years ago when we when this idea came to me and I invested in it uh, because I thought, wow, you know. Maybe we don't overtake them, but there's a whole lot of room. Mm-hmm. And they're not doing it necessarily right. I hear gripes. All, I mean, just walking around town, you hear gripes of how much money it costs. Like, wow, why does it cost that much money every month just to have that? Mm-hmm. And as technology got better and better, it made even less sense to me. Uh, and we had some features that we had thought of, the the two original founders, uh, Matt and Ryan, they had some truly revolutionary thoughts back at that back at that time. Whereas now, I think this is where timing comes in. I think those thoughts were too revolutionary mm-hmm. back in 2012. But right now, they're right on time. They're absolutely right on time. What did you do to become familiar with the industry? Because completely different vertical, completely different industry. How did you start absorbing the information to become an expert in it? For the first two years, I was supposed to be just an investor. Yeah, that's all I was supposed to be. I wasn't supposed to be running this thing, let alone leading it as I am today. Uh, I kind of found myself in this position out of just happenstance, out of Things entrepreneurialism. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So as soon as I went all in back in 2014, uh, I went to the source of the pain. I, I sat in restaurants. I watched hosts do their job. I asked them questions. Uh, we developed a small beta product. Actually, it was more of an alpha product uh, to put in their hands. 
we watch. I watched the pain that occurred when they did their jobs without it. I watched the pain that occurred when they did their jobs with it. Uh, we failed forward quickly with those with those early versions of the product, uh, but we just sat in there and I just put countless thousands of hours working in different concepts of restaurants that would allow us in, that would allow us to see what they did. And I said, how can we make your job easier? Mm -hmm. What information do you need? How can I put it all in one easy view to make you faster, to give you a better view of what you're doing, and then have you give you the tools to make that decision, the, the right decision for the guest, give them the best experience you could possibly give them. And, and today, I, you know, when I walk into places, it, the, the looks on their faces when I say I'm from Seat Ninja and that's what we do is almost payment enough because the, the customers that have our software love it. Well, and poor Mike, because anytime I eat at a restaurant, put in a reservation or it's being handled, and I'll get the text back that comes from Seat Ninja saying your table's ready. And I always like screenshot it and text it to Mike. So poor guy. But I'm also really proud because it's, know. you know, you've worked so hard uh, and you really are sort of revolutionizing the business and the people that do have the product, like primarily that front. Um, initial greeter or initial host that have that product, like they're very attached to it. And you can see that they're very attached to it. And I don't mind it because it puts a smile on my face every time. Right. That's really awesome. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, because um, you took a somewhat, I would say, risky approach. And, you know, there's always risks that are, you know, you're always weighing them out, both on a small level or on a big level. You took somewhat of a risky approach and you decided um, to get on the show, right? The Billion Dollar Buyer Show, which is, I mean, quite risky because it is a national show. It's a with big stage. A national audience and it's a big stage. And at a point where the product was really just evolving. So talk to me about why you decided to kind of go big and go national through, and the first business from this region that was on Billion Dollar Buyer. Yeah, because I was young and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't ready. We weren't ready at all. Uh, but you've got to learn somehow, mm -hmm. right? And if you don't do it, I, I tell my, I, I teach accounting. You know this, I teach yeah. accounting up at Sierra College. And one of the things I tell my kids is that, look, you know, you're going to learn more from the mistakes you make. If you got perfect papers all the time, you only know what you knew before. Yeah. When you make mistakes, well, if you're like me, you don't forget them. Mm -hmm. uh, and you learn from them. You, and you, you figure out why did this go wrong? What happened? What could we do next time? What do we need, need to be prepared for? And I think that's what that did for us. The opportunity came about when we, um, when we were looking to bring on Landry's as, a, as, an, as an account. And they really wanted us to come on board for a lot of their concepts. And, uh, but Billion Dollar Buyer kind of got in the way because well, it is you know, Tillman's show. Right. And so there the opportunity is. Right. Hi, we're going to give you national notoriety and we're going to put you on this national stage and let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. You could blow up like the next right-in tech company here, Right. And so I think there was a little bit of that, wow, this could be it, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and you only don't know what you don't know. And then we did it. And then we found out how much we didn't know. Here, I'm solving the problems of the host staff, but I forgot the guy who writes the check. Mm -hmm. And that was the owner. And his perception of what the product should do 
was a little bit different, to say the least, and which is why we had so much problem on the show, is that he wanted it to work and expected it to work a certain way, and it didn't work mm-hmm. the way he wanted it to. Um, and that was a problem. And that was a big problem on the show, and that's why the whole thing came tumbling down, is because yeah. you know, he had this expectation that it should work this way. This is the way it should work. And we were hanging out when you were going through that. And so just to be clear, when you say things go tumbling down, like the show, they ultimately decided not to pick up your product, not to pick up Seat Ninja. Right. But the company was solid because you guys went into it right away and said, here's what we learned, let's fix it. It didn't take you long. I mean, I saw you like the day after and you were already like, okay, here's like our eight point things that we have to fix and move on, which is great, right? And I think as entrepreneurs, like sometimes we think there's some magic out there and we go for it and it doesn't happen. And then we end up being sort of depressed and lonely and sobbing in our bedroom. Maybe that's just me. Right. But you were like, no, it's great. Like, we get what's going on. This has really helped focus us in a new area, like you said, you hadn't thought about. And so you just really sort of tackled it again. I guess for people that are thinking about going on a billion dollar buyer or a shark tank, I mean, the answer is not always no, because sometimes it works out. But what advice would you give them in terms of assessing the risk? Oh, wow. There's so much to be said about going on to reality TV shows. Um, just be really careful. You, you, are, you are now out there, okay? It, when you go on a reality TV show, it's not as much about the product anymore. It's about the show. Right. And that's one thing that I think that everybody has to understand. It's about the show. And the show and the storyline of the show are going to take precedence over you, your family, the product, everything else, because there's only one thing that matters, the show and the ratings on the show right. and what the producers think. And to be clear, ratings on the show means drama. They want drama. They want stakes. Right. If they can get you to break down, if they can break you, oh my God, it's TV gold. Right. Which is why our show, I think, is the most watched episode of Billion Dollar Buyer, because there was so much drama that was caused by it. And we we definitely heard about it from the internet trolls uh, after the show was done. Did your competitors take advantage at all, or were they sort of slow on the take? No. I, you know, I, I've got to give them props, because they really didn't. I, I think that they just sort of said, wow, we really don't need to do anything because you kind of just did it to yourselves. Yeah. And, and uh, when, when I was at the National Restaurant Association show last year, um, our competitors came up to us and they go, so, billion-dollar buyer guys, huh? Yeah. And, and that's all they really had to say. I always want to be the one that has the last right. say. And, and, when they, and, and part of the last say was they came over when they were at our booth to, uh, to look at our product all of a sudden, there was two of them, then there was five of them, then there was 10 of them, then there was 15 of them, mm-hmm. because they're like, oh my God, look what it does. Yeah. Oh my God, look how fast it is. I was just going to add, like, you don't have to admit this over the podcast, but how many of those people from your competitor came over that were sales reps that hand you their card and said, hey, you know, when you're ready, were there any? Not a single one. No. And you know what? And, and that, that doesn't surprise me. You know, I understand them. I mean, Smile is a sales organization. We had troubles to start off as well. And it was only, you know, at the end where we started uh, attracting sales reps that were big hitters. Yeah. Because they knew, oh, wow, you guys are well-established and you have everything that could support a big hitter like me. So for uh, somebody that has their own business, maybe is just starting off, like really can't afford to bring on a sales team, 
you are a sales guy. You've mentored sales guys. You identify. You've hired sales guys. What kind of advice would you give to somebody who isn't at the point where they can hire yet, but they need to go out and right get that revenue in? And you know, it's almost like advice to myself. You got to find a way to do it. Yeah. And you really have to find a way to do it yourself. And if you can look at the work and find a way to get people to help you along the way. You know, maybe they're already working, maybe you carve out part-time work for them where they can keep their full-time job, but if they can help you sell, uh, you give them an avenue to do that and maybe make a little extra cash on yeah. the side. I think the, that's probably the best way. That's the way I've been trying. Uh, you hire interns, you try to break the work down that a sales rep would do into its components, you know, prospecting, you know, demoing, closing, uh, service after the fact, installation. Uh, you try to break down things into their components and then things that you can't do or jobs that uh, maybe you're not good at or maybe you need that specialist for, you get that sales professional in there to do yeah. that part of it. And a lot of times that is the close. That's right. the one part that, that is the most difficult thing to do is to know when to just get that kill ass for the check. I mean, it's interesting because people ask me about that quite a bit. And I find that there's this very negative perception of sales. Even if we own our own business and you know, small business owners or entrepreneurs, they're like, oh, I'm just not a sales guy. That, I don't want to do that. That's not my personality. So I always talk to people about doing it in terms of relationships. I'm like, build relationships, right? Don't even view it as sales. Like, View it as relationships, but don't be afraid to ask where the pain points are and then see if you have a solution for it, right? So it sort of takes the edge off. But I think that's what I really focused on when I was starting up and didn't know anybody in town, was sort of on my own. I was just like, I'm just going to go out and talk to people and listen and then not be afraid to ask when that opportunity happens. Because many times I'll find with new salespeople or new people that are out sort of hunting down new business, the opportunity, I'm with them and I see them and the opportunity is right there to, to offer a solution or to offer, to extend an, you know, an opportunity to solve a problem and people will back away from it. And I'm like, no, this is when you jump, right? So just, and to not be um, sacrificial in terms of that, like to have enough arrogance because you believe in your product to be able to say, we can actually solve that for you. And it's worth it and you'll be happy to pay me for it. Yeah. You really have to be able to say that you have to have that type of belief to say, look, this is there is value here. I know there's value here. I think that the mentality you have there is great for a self-talk track, someone who's yeah. really not a salesperson like me. I, I'm, an, I'm an accountant by trade, uh, but I have to sell. Yeah. And pretty much everybody does in some way or another everybody in their lives. Does. Everybody does. But to truly be a sales professional, uh, I think that, that that you get to a time where you embrace it and you and and you get to the point where you accept it and say, "Look, this is what I do mm -hmm. and this is what I these are the questions I have to ask and I have to ask you for business because that is my job." Okay, so as we wrap up, I have sort of two really key questions. One is kind of awkward, but we're friends, so we'll just go in. We'll just dive into it. Ready? All right. So we're entrepreneurs that are approaching, here's the awkward part, sort of the golden years. Like we're middle-aged. So with that, we bring a tremendous amount of experience. Um, but how do you keep sort of your entrepreneurial brain fresh? How do you motivate yourself? Like it's not a, because you are the opposite of a been there, done that kind of guy. Uh, I consider myself sort of in that same boat. Like we're always looking for opportunities. So how do you keep the stream flowing um, like, are you like a blog guy? Are you inspired by TED Talks? Like, what, what inspires you to sort of keep your entrepreneurial brain fresh? I tell people all the time I'm a problem solver at heart. 
And then when a problem arises, that's what attracts my attention. If I can see a clear path, that gets me really moving. And that, that's what gets me motivated to be involved in the process of that entrepreneurialism again. Whether it's doing a company for myself, creating a company for myself, or just helping others on their journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I see what they're doing and I see, wow, you have a, I see your clear path. I see that this solves this problem and I, I recognize that it's there and I agree with it. I want to help those people uh, because I think that they've got a, a, a great opportunity, a great shot for success, and I'd like to help them. But I think what keeps you, uh, I would say, sparked mm-hmm. um, is mentorship, right? Because you and I, many times, somebody will come to me and I'll be like, did you talk to Mike yet? And they'll be like, yeah. And I'll be like, okay, well, just give me a quick rundown what he said, right? Just because I want to make sure that we're being consistent in advice that we're giving. But it seems like you do an awful lot of that. So it seems like that might be a way that just keeps you really sparked because you do a lot of mentorship or advice giving, taking meetings. Yeah, I do. And, and you know, I enjoy it because I never... In going through that thought process with somebody else, you, like I said, I'm constantly working on problems myself in my brain. And I never know when advice, something I might say or something they might say in doing these meetings and doing this mentorship might come back and solve a problem that I'm working on. So to stay in the thick of things, to always have that, that you know, creative energy working it's a good thing. Uh, plus, it's, it's, I mean, altruistically, it's a way to give back, you yeah. know, because so many people have helped me. Yeah. I, I mean, Gordon, you've helped me immensely. Yeah. And, and, and you know, even the, the people in the glue factory, the other, the other um, groups, the other entrepreneurs that are there, they don't realize it. But certain things that they say have helped me as well. And sure. sometimes it's, it's just as easy as just picking me up on a day that I'm down. And, and I think that groups like that, having a lot of people in your network— Mentoring people and then being mentored. Yeah, you know, I love. I actually love being mentored. Mm-hmm. I love listening to people's advice, people that have been there, especially, you know, the mentors that aren't preachy. You know, that just yeah. just really truly want to help, listen, offer their advice, and you know, it may be advice you heard before. It may be advice that you know you can't possibly implement, put into effect because it's just not you know. But then I do appreciate them at least giving me the time. It's interesting because I have several people that I would consider mentors or coaches. And so now I know when I sit down with people, I'll always identify. Like, I'm looking for some mentorship points here or I'm looking for some coaching here, right? And it makes a little bit of a difference in terms of people's approach. And then I found, like, the information that I'm able to take in and receive. Like, there's one person that I meet with fairly frequently. um, More when I'm just like, oh, I have no idea how I'm going to handle this. And to me, it's a sign of strength when I can go to somebody and say, here's the 14 things I've tried, not one thing has worked. But I really need somebody outside of the intensity of the circle to just provide a little light that keeps the wheels spinning. You know, and I think it's, you know, I always tell myself, like, this is a sign of strength. It is not a sign of weakness when you need to ask for help because that makes the relationship stronger. People want to be a part of success. And I think it's, again, you know, we started this podcast sort of talking about trust, but I think that's where trust is really built because it's real, right? It's it's very authentic. Yeah, you bring up a great point there. And there are a lot of things. I mean, in, in being an entrepreneur, it's hard. Your trust will be tested because you will trust and you will be shown that trust wasn't something you should have done mm-hmm. quite often. Compassion is another thing that will be tested. So as an entrepreneur, you have to be ready for that. And you have to be ready to still 
have certain things that are your guiding light that you will stick to. I'm going to stick with my optimism. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stick with my trust, and I'm going to stick with my compassion. Yeah. Because they're the things that make me who I am. Right. And they're, they're why I've been successful to this point. And there will always be people there that will try to tear that down. There will always be people that will violate that with you. You just need to identify them as quickly as you can and get them out of right. the way and I move think, on. I think over time with me, what I've learned about trust is before I was a lot more trusting and gave it out a lot more freely. But trust has now become a very valuable commodity because I extend it uh, much more sparingly, which makes it more precious of a gift. And I receive it more sparingly as well. And I think that's just, I mean, that's the realities of, of A, being in business and B, being an entrepreneur. And three, being in the golden age. Yeah, and, and stepping into the golden age. So final question, as you look forward to success with Seat Ninja, what's next after that? Do you have it in, in you to find like another pain point in another industry and do it again? Or is that a question that can only be answered when you sort of cross it? That can only be answered once I cross it, once I get there. You know, yeah. right now I'm, I'm, Seat Ninja is my sole focus. Yeah, it's all and hands, it's, all hands, it's on, all hands deck on deck, right and it's got to it's got to get to a point where it can take on a life of its own and really go forward without me. I mean, Smile got to that point where I knew it could go on without me there. Nobody likes to say that, but I thought that at the time, and I look back now, and I was right. It's actually thrived without me there, yeah. which is which is great. Can I actually meant to ask this question earlier? Sure. So I want to sort of swing back to this, which is when you left Smile, and then eventually, you know, as you talk about um, Seat Ninja going on without you, emotionally, what was that like to give up a child or a baby? You know, it was like giving up one hundred spouses or best friends. Yeah because each one of those employees meant something to me and had a connection. And to walk away from it, um, knowing that I was moving on to something else and they had to continue on their path uh, was, and knowing that they put a lot of trust in me, we shared a lot of personal things, personal history, uh, incredibly emotional. It was really like 100 breakups all at once. Yeah. And it, 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 to this day, I'm even just talking about it right now, I'm emotional. Yeah. I mean, it's been... You feel it. It's been almost five years now, and I'm still emotional about it yeah. because that's how much that company and those people meant to me. Yeah. So um, it, it's really hard, really, really hard. And as an entrepreneur, you can't help but feel that way. So anything that we didn't talk about, should have talked about, anything that you wanted to share that we didn't cover? Oh, come on. We have to save that for episode two. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Thanks, Gordon. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for being here. I mean, you're a busy guy, so I'm excited that you were here. So thank you. No problem. So while each entrepreneurial path is a little bit different and unique to individual circumstances, I always find value and something new to consider when I hear about the principles and attitudes people implement when taking the leap. In case you weren't taking notes while listening, I'll reiterate the five elements that Mike sees as critical to entrepreneurial success. One, having a good plan. Two, having the right team in place. Three, having access to adequate capital. Four, ensuring you're promoting the right product or services. And five, making sure your timing is right for your specific opportunity to take shape and for a little bit of luck to come into play. For those of you still working on your big idea and figuring out your timing, I hope you found value and inspiration in this week's episode that will impact your day, your life, or your business. I'll see you next week. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Giving Garden, an app focused on growing communities around food and gardening, which is super vital in an agricultural oasis like the Sacramento Valley. So I have Lauren here from our threefold team, and I thought uh, you could come in and share a few things about Giving Garden. Sure. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, you're all sort of all things health and nutrition, and I know you just started Whole30. Like, how's that going? I did. I actually started yesterday. Wow. And a big fundamental rule of the Whole30 is to eat a ton of produce. Got it. So I've been on the hunt for a ton of local produce, which is where Giving Garden has been super helpful. Yeah. So tell us about it. So on the practical side, the Giving Garden app is available on iOS and Android. And ultimately, it helps urban and suburban gardeners connect and share ideas, knowledge, and produce with their neighbors. Users can even get ideas, alerts, reminders, and guidance on what to grow in their area directly on their phone. Nice. On the feel-good side, it empowers local gardeners to be more successful while also combating food waste, food insecurity, and increasing the health and happiness of their communities. So love it. Like, what a great concept. It's huge. It's it's really instrumental for Sacramento. And Giving Garden is pretty new, so now is a great time to be a part of helping to get it off the ground and to help this concept thrive in our region. So even if you're not a gardener, Giving Garden is a great way to access local produce from those looking to move their excess goods. So to learn more about the project and to download the app, visit the Giving Garden website at givinggarden.io. Really cool concept. You can be a part of it. 